Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kunin. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 17 of Education Suspended. I am Jessica Pfeiffer, one of the co-hosts. Let's talk about today's guest. We connect with educator and British writer, Dr. Helen Lees. She's a journalist, an independent scholar, and an artist who explores topics such as alternative education, silence in schools, and sexuality. She's an associate research fellow at York Street John University in England and has written two books, one titled Education Without Schools, Discovering Alternatives, and the second book, which we dive into today, is called Silence in Schools. So let's just kind of recap what what this episode is going to be about. Um, Obviously, the title is very clear. We talk about silence. Um, But we realize silence is actually very complex. So what do we mean by silence? How is that a skill that we begin to teach when it's very clear that we work and live in an educational society that's very loud? And how do we begin to understand that when we teach this skill, we're also starting to give agency to our students and give control to the students over their body, their mind, their attitudes, and their thoughts. So I really appreciate this conversation and for Dr. Helen Lee's giving us her time. All right, y'all. So sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Dr. Helen Lee's. All right, Helen, welcome to Education Suspended. It's such an honor to have you here. And Thank you. just for the record, you are our, our first podcast guest on the other side of an ocean. So you are, I think you're in, you're in Italy right now. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I, I live just outside of Florence. That's awesome. Um, so I want to kind of give our listeners a little bit of connection. So, cause Helen and I and Steve and Jamie, we're all meeting for the first time and we connected through an old friend of mine, Cassidy Hall, who was one of the um, directors of a documentary called In the Pursuit of Silence. And so one thing that Steve and I have talked about over and over is just this elements and this belief that we need more reflection in school. We need more quiet, more dissociation. So I texted my friend Cassidy and I was like, hey, Cassidy, will you hop on our podcast, Education Suspended sometime and let's jump into silence? And she goes, sure, but there's someone better that you should talk to, um, which is which is Helen. So here we are. So thank you, Cassidy, for making this connection. Um, and today we're really going to jump into Helen's book called Silence in Schools. So this is this is definitely, I think, a book for all teachers to read. It is so good. We were preparing and I said, Helen, I have so many notes written all over this. Um, we only have an hour, but I wish we had like six because we could just really jump into this. All right. I think there's some, some good news on the, on the Silence in Schools as a book front because I was sent a letter not long ago from the publisher telling me that I think it was the end of March, but sometime around now that the book was going to go out of print, which means that because I keep the copyright, I can put it on for free if I want. So (laughs) maybe I'll do that. Okay. Nobody, I don't, I'm not sure that anybody's going to have to pay to read it anymore. That's amazing. (laughs) Well, the moment 
you know, I've had it for a couple months now. And anytime I'm doing conferences or trainings, I, I show it to everyone. I'm like, buy this book. Um, when, we talk, <laughs> when we talk about kind of increasing uh, our ability to consolidate new information. So that's good to hear. Um, all right, Helen, let's, let's just kind of begin. If you would just introduce yourself to our listeners and talk about sure. kind of what you do and how you got there. Okay. Well, there's two sides to this. One is that um, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm now an, a, an independent scholar because uh, I'm, I'm not in any sort of university post, um, working mainly on all things alternative education. And that is obviously connected. And in the book, it's very clear that that's connected to uh, silence. Uh, but I was doing a PhD on the discovery of alternative education. What happens to the self of adults? That was back in uh, 2007 to 10. And um, what I was finding was that when people discover that alternative education is a possibility, so not just sort of standard mainstream school attendance, assuming schooling is the only pathway, because that's obviously not true. Uh, but the concept of another way was not, and, and still, I, strangely, uh, ironically, and even with COVID, um, I, I doubt that that concept is uh, abroad in the mainstream in any substantial or um, significant way, because the belief that schooling is the mainstream, is the main the given, the only and the best way and that schooling is a good is so profoundly embedded in the psyche uh, of, of people um, because it was their experience mostly. Most people went to school, had to, or believed they had to go to school. So I was doing a PhD on what happens when you discover this is all a big fat lie. You don't have to go to school. Mainstream education is not the only way and it is only schooling. Uh, it is not education at all. And I was discovering that adults were having some kind of religious revelation or, or revelation that they spoke about in religious terms of seeing light at the end of the tunnel and all kinds of uh, religious kinds of vocabulary. So I was doing that project. And at the same time, I had an enduring interest in silence because when I was first getting into education as an adult, not as a student, I was training to be a teacher in the school where I had been a school student. So I think in American terms, it would be your middle and senior school. Uh, so between Eng English would be between the ages of 11 and 18. And I had gone to this particular school and I had been a very good girl, a good student. I had assumed it was a nice experience or that I was having a nice experience. And I did well for myself, I did well for them. You know, they used to roll me out whenever there were guests coming to the school and so on because I behaved appropriately and said the right things. And I exited that school with good results and so on. So happy story, right? No, because afterwards I had some kind of existential crisis. And 10 years later, so around the age of 28, I was trying to be an artist. I was getting poorer and poorer as artists do if they don't know about the business side. So I thought, I know what, I'll be a teacher. So I rolled up to this school that was the only one that would take me with a philosophy degree, which happened to be the school where I'd been a student. It was just one of those things. And I knew the school grounds extremely well because I'd been there as a student. 
And I'd also spent the, the, the intervening 10 years increasingly in personal silence because of this existential crisis that had occurred once I'd left the school. I was looking for answers. And in order to do that, I made a silent environment for myself through the choice, the life choices that I was taking. And so I turned up at this school to train to be a teacher and it, it struck me immediately Oh my goodness me, I cannot believe the volume of this place. I cannot believe how loud it is, how inexorable the pace is, how there are absolutely no breaks. There's nowhere to go to be quiet. And there's so many people and no one seems to be aware of the fact this is totally inhuman. Yeah. So that was in 2003. And I thought to myself, oh, I haven't got a clue what I was thinking, talking about thinking. I just had this sort of vague thought, wow, I'd like to do something about this. I'd like to say something about this because nobody's talking about it. Or so I thought. Um, anyway, so if we if we go forward, but that, that teaching experience led me almost immediately to, to towards this PhD. And so while I was doing the PhD and you're tooling yourself up with sort of academic skills you know for writing for saying something I thought oh now I'm in the right environment I can say something about that silence stuff that I used to think about you know when I was trained to be a teacher so I I, I started to write a little conference paper and I realized I, I, at that time I thought well you know I'm the only person in the world that's ever had these thoughts very wrong um so I started to do some research for this little conference paper and I realized, well, this is such a massive subject. And it really shocked me because I thought I was the only person that cared about silence in schools. And what I discovered was that the literature is massive. The educational literature is massive. And I thought, wow, this is a book. So the book that you mentioned is the one that came out of those initial thoughts and out of that conference paper. Um, so, so that's how that sort of... Uh, um, became a reality yeah. um, and, and it hasn't stopped since because it's a very popular subject, silence. Yeah, so it's interesting that you went back to teach at the school that you were a student at. If you reflect on your experience as a student, I mean, I guess I'm interested in kind of what, were your, what was your educational experience like up kind of through uh, high school, you said, and do you remember school being that noisy, right? If I reflect back on my experience, I think it's all I knew, right? I don't think I would have been even taken time as a, you know, a middle schooler to say, oh, it's really crazy and loud in here, right? It's, if that's all you know, it's sometimes you don't think twice. Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, I, it never occurred to me that the place was loud. And it never occurred to me that school bells ringing every 45 minutes was against good experience. Um, it never occurred to me that there being no quiet places to go was bad for me. So I, I thought at school I was having a, a good time, a humane time. I thought that I was well, and it's just not true. I was having a horrific time. And when I, and so was everybody else. Um, now, I don't know, I can't explain to you why I woke up or why I think I've discovered that I was having a horrific time, even though it was, it was um, uh, you know, school experience. Obviously, this is my, my set of opinions, okay, about this. It's a very personal take on it. But I find that a lot of people agree with me. And 
most of the people who agree with me are people who've had problems. So I didn't have problems when I was at school, I thought. The problems that I had was when I realised what school had done to me. And, I, and I, so I spent that next 10 years, the post-school 10 years, detoxifying from the harm that it had done and realising that it doesn't have to be that way, that it can be better, that it can be other, that there are different approaches that people can take which do not cause harm, which do not cause a need to get over schooling as experience. Yeah, I like that. So I'm oh. wondering, oh, go ahead, Steve. Well, maybe it's too soon for this, but when I was listening to Helen, I thought of her experience both as a teacher and a student. And in your book, you, you come up with the concept of weak silence versus really effective and strong silence. And, and maybe you can elaborate on that, but I would love to know kind of when you realized that or, or how you discovered that, that kind of dichotomy between those kinds of silence. I thought that was a fascinating way of approaching it. Well, I mean, that is, that is thoroughly linked to both my reaction to that school when I arrived as a training teacher, because I thought, I thought to myself, Oh, I see. Now, I mean, we have to realize it's a very unusual, uh, strange, serendipitous situation that I'm going back to the school I was a student at. Um, I, I, I realized within a week, oh, this is why I had 10 years of existential crisis. This is why uh, my mind needed to work it all out. This school, how this school operates, the authoritarian manners of this school did me harm. Um, and I was reading A.S. Neal, the Summerhill book, and I thought, wow, this is the blueprint. You know, children should be free. They should have choice. They should have voice. And at the same time, those 10 years of quiet living in order to recover and, and find some answers had enabled me, I think, to appreciate silence and appreciate the the benefits that it can bring to our lives and what it's good for and so when I was in, in that school I realized that first of all they didn't have any beneficial silence but they also had no choice the children had no choice to choose silence if they wanted to choose silence they were doing it on the sly by bunking off you know truanting from the school or yeah. or quietly disappearing into a corner where nobody could see them and 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 I thought, wait a minute, nobody here has got a choice for silence and therefore there's no positive silence around in this environment with a thousand odd people. Um, and having had these 10 years of benefiting from choosing silence, yeah. uh, I, I, I didn't think that that was right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm wondering if we can take a moment um, and just talk about kind of what what do you consider silence? I highlighted, and I love that you said, you know, your conceptualization of this concept is it's not an absence of sounds, right? Which I think is where most people go to. It means like, oh, everything's like nothing, right? And you actually talk about it in a highly tangible way. And I made a list of, uh, of words that you use to describe silence throughout the book. So you talk about it uh, as a descriptor, you use flow, you talk about it as a place, you talk about it as a feeling, you talk about it as an experience, as a space, something that moves. So I'm wondering, Helen, if you can kind of, what, what is this concept of silence? 
Okay, so because of the nature of the material, I am aware that when I say that I'm also doing something that we're talking about. Um, it was necessary for me in order to create, and, and when I was doing the research with the schools in that book, it became clear to me that it is very important to talk about silence for silence to take place, right? Particularly in environment, institutional environments and community environments where you have uh, interaction between people and, and necessary negotiations about the allowance of silence. So, um, I made a decision, I had to have a strategy in the book in order to talk about silence, because if you're being truest to silence, and that I put at the end of the book with that last chapter, which is like a page long, perhaps. Um, if you're being true to silence, you don't say anything. So you can't have a book that says nothing, right? Because if you want to talk about a concept, you want a concept to be introduced into the lives of people and for people to better understand a concept, you've got to talk about it. So in order to do that, um, as I put in the book, I put markers in the sand, okay? Um, and, and some of those things that you're mentioning there are, are those kinds of markers, but they're all, they're all, um, they're not false because they're useful, but they are nothing to do with silence itself. They are guiding posts for the navigation of the territory that leads us towards the goal, that being silence. And, and, and to answer your question in a, a slightly other way, um, I think that the word that sums up for me what I consider to be silence would be the word presence. Mm. I like that. I like that. We, we, we talk about that at times, Grainer, right, with, with teachers about like one of our purposes as educators is is to be present with these students right and kind of how that ability to be present impacts our ability to respond in a way that fits to to be attentive to them to attune to them so it's i like that you brought that up that that it's not just physically there but there's other elements of that um well presence is is a physical uh, thing um, I mean, as you're suggesting, presence is also something perhaps you could call it spiritual or emotional or psychological. And silence is a wonderful material because it's all of these things. It has no boundaries. It's got no limitations. Yeah. But the, the word presence for me is it sums up for me after all these years of thinking about or being with, if I'm lucky enough to have achieved it, uh, silence as a uh, an experience of, of, of one's life, mm -hmm. the word presence sums up the gift of the matter. It's an incredibly generous material. It's not going to say no if you want it. It's a bit like in the, in the Bible, there's some kind of, and I'm saying this in a non-denominational way, uh, there's, a, there's a, a comment, you can tell I'm not exactly that familiar with the Bible. There's a comment, something like if you knock on the door it'll open well that's what silence is like if you ask for it it's incredibly generous it will never let you down but you do have to kind of ask for it yeah. you've got to get the gift of it shall we say because it is a it is a material that is of such value that it constitutes being a gift yeah 
Well, let's, let's go into that, if you would mind. Greater, go ahead. What did you yeah, want to say? Well, you know, one of the things I had written down was the practice of presence. I just those, those terms came to me when I was reading Helen's book, and I've thought about them a lot personally. How do I practice this presence? And, and, and kind of the, the whole concept of silence was, was wonderfully enriching for me to listen to. I, I would like to hear, I guess, from a teacher perspective, how, how did you begin or how do we begin or what's, how do people begin this practice? I know it's not a one size fits all thing, but I, I think everybody's gonna wanna know, well, it sounds great, but what do I do? Yeah, well, I mean, that's where it, it this, this is bigger than just silence and it's a highly educational issue and a highly educational question because you cannot have silence in a, in a classroom, in a school, in the lives of teachers or students if you are authoritarian and you're telling them to shut up. That isn't silence, okay? That's the weak version that you, you spoke about earlier. Yeah, so if you want the, the positive, what I call the strong silence, the one that's strong enough to bring forth benefits, you're gonna to have to be a teacher that offers choice and voice to the students, including the choice and the voice about silence. You can't force silence on the students because as soon as you're forcing, like you might force a maths exercise on them, as soon as you're forcing silence, you are telling them to shut up. And that's not silence, okay? So the pedagogy of the, the classroom and of the teacher needs to be non-authoritarian for silence to be truly there in a positive way. That's the first condition. Can you, I want to go into that, this, this concept of pedagogy, right, and of, of teaching. So this, this element of choice, but you also highlight, and you've just said that actually, I think a few moments ago, about like just the other added benefits in education that silence can bring, this, this element of creativity, this element um, to be more intentional, right? Can you go into other things that silence can benefit from, because I think what happens is that you know we work within a system that wants to know well how is this going to how is this going to better the academic gains of my kids everything is so test so results driven so how 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 would you uh, respond to that what would you say are the other benefits of of actually using this as a tool right okay so those so you 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 said one thing and i'm not sure you meant it exactly like that but it's very useful for our discussion which is you said um how can silence benefit right if if i'm not mistaken mm -hmm. well that that's a useful phrase for us to dwell upon because silence doesn't benefit from anything it's complete it has no need for us it has no need for additions and that's part of its its pure benefit as a gift, uh, as, a, as an element that we can use pedagogically, educationally, interrelationally, um, because this material doesn't rely on us, it doesn't need us, and yet it gives us so much. So if we think, well, what does it give us or what can it give us? It can give us, first of all, an experience of a non-binary element of, of living and of, of life. And that's incredibly important if you're black, if you're a girl, if you're not good at a certain subject, 
if your spoken language is not as eloquent as your friend next door, if you have English or whatever language as a second language in the cultural context, okay, because all of, all of these things that I've just mentioned are subject to binary problems where they are less or they are more. And it's not nice to be at the receiving end of a binary judgment that you are an, a zero or a one less or more than others. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So silence as an experience, and, and in particular, of course, it relates to language um, and, 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 and the, the, the judgments that come with how we communicate in silence and with silence, everybody is equal in every way because you can't say black people are less than white people you can't say girls are more you know they're, they're more they're less intelligent than boys you can't say that those children over there who've got a learning uh, issue or something they're not quite as good students as others everybody's equal why because you're not saying anything you're not making any judgments with your language and this i think can be a truly beautiful and liberating experience to have an experience where just for a moment you are not lesser you're not more as well and that's also important yeah so what i want to i don't want to push necessarily but i think one thing that was coming up for me and and you just reminded me of this of you know everyone's equal do you believe that everyone's access to silence is equal? I think what came up for me is that I, I've worked with students before that like, I would, I did, it doesn't, there's nothing about it that feels equal and their ability to kind of access it with the, the, the kind of the life that they live in. Now that's a really good question because if accessing silence results in a, a beneficial, useful and, and moral equality, then the issue is not the, the the material of silence, the issue is access to it. And in the book, I talk about techniques and non-techniques for access. Um, it, so obviously you've got this, this uh, the, the binary between the weak and the strong. So the forced silence, which is not silence at all. And then you've got the positive silence, which we're aiming for because it's a good material that can help people. And then the issue is, how do you get to it? The answer to that is any way you like, as long as there's no coercion. So everybody, and of course, this is all part of the equality agenda of the context, the, the material that we're talking about, but it's, it's, it's part of um, the freedom of the material. If you want to experience silence, if you can get the concept, if someone can help you to understand the benefit of the concept, why it matters for you or could matter for you to have a taste of it, go to it any way you like. If you hear about meditation, then go ahead and meditate. If you hear about mindfulness, then do some mindfulness. If you hear about just sitting and pausing, go stare out the window, you know, ignore the teacher and stare out the window and look at the bird who, who, who you know, comes to sit on the branch. Do it however you want. It's freedom and it, it should be um, unprescribed because everybody's different. And there's also no quality judgments. There's no sort of standard of have you achieved the best silence or the, the, the great silence or the, 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 the profound and the complete silence. It's not like that. Even a tiny taste is enough 
for you to understand what it is. And then the degree to which you encounter it or the regularity to which you encounter it, although regularity is a specific issue I'll mention in a minute. This is all about choices that you're making and needs that you have. Because silence, like I said before, does not need you, but it will always be generous in being there for you if you choose to go to it. Can, can I, I ask a question of, now, of, again, I'm getting down to a little bit of practicality. And I know, and I love the freedom of what you're saying, Helen, but I know, I know our teachers, and I, as a teacher, I'm going to say it, is how, how does, a, and you've worked with a lot of educators who I think have pra are practiced in this, or at least have success with it. How did they begin to nudge their students towards um, the concept of understanding the concept of silence? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think nudge is also a nice word. One of the things that came up in talking to teachers who successfully embed it in their practice and in their classrooms is that they are, for them, very fortunately, working in a school where the head, the teacher, the boss, whoever that might be, has agreed that this can be in the school. And it seems to me that the head teacher of a school, I don't know what you call the head teacher in America. Yeah, um, but that's right. Okay. Uh, they, they, they have to be on board. They have to agree because their power as directors of that educational environment can sabotage the silence a teacher might want to create in a classroom just like that. So a school with an ethos for silence would probably be a school where silence is in conversation among the professionals that work there that is respected at the level of the director, the leader of the educational environment. And possibly also, and this is something that in one way or another you find in environments where silence is in an educational sp space with success, with, if you like, permission, although that's a troublesome word, but let's just use it anyway, um, is that at some point before people arrive there, they read something about it or they heard something about it such that they um, approach that space with consent. So an example would be a school that uses silence as a pedagogical tool would have something about that in the brochure. So when somebody goes to that school, they've read in the brochure, we use silence. Is that okay? It's okay because you turned up. I, I, I like that. And you, you highlight that, right? Of besides it being like a tangible nudge to students, it's a, it's a cultural shift for that educational setting, which I appreciated that you highlighted it. And I think that came up for me, right? We, you know, we can't, again, I keep saying nudge because I like that word, Steve, as well. Like we can't nudge the kids or start kind of exploring this concept if the teachers don't get it, if they don't experience it themselves. And so I think that cultural shift is important. I, I love that, Jessica. That's exact. I wrote that down too. I said, what is, and I wanted to ask Helen, what has the effect been on staff? Hmm. I think we're finding in much of our mental health work, it's staff first. You just, you have, and you, you actually obviously started with the head teacher. That's, you know, one of the more important aspects of being able to do this. Can you, comment on that? Just, I guess, just expand on what Jessica just asked. How has it affected staff members in schools that have the ethos of silence? Oh, well, um, 
I, mean, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on that because obviously I haven't spoken to all the silent schools that there are, the, the schools that are using it. But uh, those teachers that I've spoken to that have silence in their schools are, seem to me to be happy. They seem to be happy teachers who like going to work and like working with students. I haven't met one yet that is miserable about having silence in their practice or in their environment. That would be new for me. I've never met one. Okay. I like that. I want to go back to kind of this element of it could silence be a privilege. Um, and so have you ever experienced with students in which silence is almost scary? In which silence is this element of like, it's so new and they're not really sure how to navigate that. Has that been anything that you've heard about or worked with? Um, I think it depends. Uh, people need to get a taste for it, okay? So yeah. that's the, sort of the game of the matter, the, um, the complicated, and it's an educational issue to do with initiation into practices. How do you get people to have a taste of something they might not have an initial interest in? I mean, do you, do you go sneaky and just snick it, snuck it in? I'm not quite sure what the English would be. Get it in there sort of on the sly and hope that they like the taste of it and then they'll ask for it themselves. Or, you know, what's the technology of, of that? And I think that in line with the nature of the material, you're just going to have to be honest. And not everyone takes it up. I mean, I've had experiences where there are some extremely enthusiastic people who've come across the concept of silence in schools or education, and they want it. They, they, want, they want others to have it. They want that to be in their environment. And then what they encounter is tremendous resistance. And there's no... There's no solution for that, really, other than perhaps a little bit of initiation in terms of attempting to introduce the concept. But um, that's why the head teacher or the director is very important, because they have the power to say, you will consider it. OK, what they don't have the power to say is you will do it. OK, now, because but what they what they do have the power to say, what can happen, and this would be the good situation is they can say, okay, in a class of 30 people, let's say there's two teachers in that class and 28 students. Hi, everybody, we're gonna have silence today. We're not forcing anybody to take part, but what we would ask you, if you would be so kind, is please don't sabotage the silence of others. And then what happens is that everybody either chooses to be silent, because they've chosen silence, or they choose to be silent because they are being kind to those who are choosing silence. And if one person decides to not be kind, they sabotage the silence for everybody, and I reckon they're going to be really unpopular. Yeah, it's that element of, of empathy, right, of connection to others and the needs of others, so I like that. Now, you, you said, I think you just said, like, um, you know, there, there can be this element of resistance, right? Uh, of, um, you know, well, just in general, I think most humans tend to be resistive to something that's unknown to them. And I think from a cultural perspective, silence is extremely unknown in education, right? So I think that that's kind of going against it. And on top of that, um, you say in the book, right, that, that silence 
uh, essentially contradicts and counteracts schooling, improvement, and instructional means to an end, right? So in a lot of ways, it's counterintuitive for how a lot of administrators and teachers think that they're going to get the best results out of kids, right? So I think that are there other kind of barriers that you, you also see kind of getting in the way of people really understanding the benefits of, of why this is necessary? Well, I mean, I've heard comments along the lines of they might not have used these words, but what they're really thinking was take this hippie crap out of my space, <laughs> right? Um, they don't believe silence can be beneficial and they're not interested because they're too busy with other thoughts. Um, and and that, that has to be respected. You know, perhaps silence is the material that you're either ready for or you're not and you can't force it on people. It's just kind of rule number one. <laughs> You cannot force this on anybody. Um, the, 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 the trouble with silence, once you scrape back the surface, either thinking it's hippie or thinking it's cool, is that it is a revolutionary material because in a schooling environment, as I, as I wrote in the book, schooling environments are among the most binary environments that there are, okay? You are successful, yeah. you're a failure. You are clever, you are stupid, et cetera, et cetera. You fit in or you don't fit in. So um, what silence is going to do, and that's just at the level of, you know, judgments of people as people, it's going to revolutionize that space, that environment, those, those judgment calls uh, and the structures uh, wherein those judgments make sense. This is going to flatten them out. It's going to dissolve them and it's going to make them senseless. And then the other thing that's going to happen is, as I mentioned before, uh, the pedagogy is going to be affected. Now, teachers have vested interests in who they are in terms of their teacher identity, how they formed the training that they had and what makes sense to them in terms of their practice. So I've encountered recently some teachers who are extremely authoritarian and when I suggested, even obliquely, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. You can be other than telling children what to do and speaking to them in this mean, cruel uh, tone of voice. Uh, they resist tremendously because there are vested interests and there are vested identities that over the years have built up. And, and they're just kind of, this is my interpretation, they're just kind of waiting to get out of the game safely, safely enough, yeah. uh, they're certainly not going to invest in changing because that would mean that all they've done up to that point, if they're sort of long in the tooth in that game, will have been wrong. They will realise that there was another way, that there was a better way. That's my judgment call. Um, but it's based in research, I'm afraid. Uh, they will realise that they have been mistaken all their career. People are very, very reluctant to admit something as massive as that. So if people agree with to have silence and it does its revolutionary work, their whole life is going to change, not just their professional life, but that's also going to impact on how they behave, hopefully, towards themselves and other people in their private sphere. So we're not talking about some nicey-nicey hippie kind of sit down and uh, repeat some sort of chant word uh, and then you're going to end up with a, a taste of silence. We're talking about something that is going to change everything. Wow. 
just let that land a little. I know. Just like, let's just be quiet for a moment with that. I would also like to get your your thoughts on technology and silence and the difficulty of that, or maybe there's ways that technology can enhance it. I, I just would love to hear you comment on technology and silence, because I think it, it makes it more difficult. It seems to me it makes it more difficult, but I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and it'll increasingly be uh, of relevance, won't it? Because technology will rise. Uh, I just wrote a, a chapter about solitude and schooling, and, and that brought in this issue of what does it mean to be alone in a positive sense? And there are a lot of parallels between that and silence. Um, I think, at, at, you know, when, when we're talking about technology, we're always talking about technology being beneficial and not say, for instance, something negative like being addictive or a replacement for a positive sense of self, okay? Um, and I think that we have to work really hard to value silence. We have to work really hard to make space for it, to not be busy all the time, to give it space and time to be present in our existence. This isn't easy. I mean, given the pace of life and all the technology in our lives, we could just spend the whole day with zero silence and, and go to sleep and then wake up and do it all over again. So silence is a choice. It's a lifestyle choice. It's a choice to love yourself. And I think it's exactly the same with technology, isn't it? It's the same issues, the same choices are being made. Yeah, I think what's, what's coming up for me is that in my experience when I'm in schools, the quickest way to get a kid to be quiet is to give them a piece of technology, right? So this also comes down to your interpretation of what is silence because I'm sure those teachers think, oh, my room is completely quiet. Everyone's on an iPad or a computer, but is that really silence? Right. So I think it goes back to helping explore that concept. I don't know what your thoughts on that. I think I think this is a really difficult one. I mean, silence is not oral. Um, it, it's a state of mind. So if somebody is experiencing peace and quiet and flow and a sense of being at tune with themselves in playing Minecraft or searching the internet, that would be for me an approximation of what we mean by positive silence. Mm -hmm. If however, it's causing rumination and emotional upset mm -hmm. and it's making somebody feel inadequate, for instance, because they're looking at pictures of beautiful people and they don't feel very beautiful at that moment, whatever it might be that the interaction with technology is causing, our focus is on what is the state of mind that the person is experiencing. Yeah, I like that, that state of mind. So, so for you, Helen, as a teacher, talk us through wh what you did, right? How did you bring silence in your classroom? Um, well, I mean, that's difficult because I wouldn't say that in terms of school experience, uh, I, I have much as a teacher. I mean, yeah. as soon as I encountered this busy, noisy school that I mentioned, mm -hmm. Uh, I also encountered something called academic writing and I went straight into a PhD and then became an academic. Uh, so my contribution or knowledge of silence in education 
is one through talking to people who do have practical classroom-based experience of it or school ethos experience and have done silence with their students um, or it is in creating theoretical frameworks by which people can practice it for themselves and attempt to have successful experiences. As a university teacher, I have engaged in some silent experiences. So for instance, I had one class and I said, okay, today we're gonna go for a silent walk. This was inspired by a colleague of mine in Copenhagen who runs silent walks around Copenhagen where you start, you say nothing, you say nothing the whole time. Sometimes you stand, you look at a building, you say nothing and then you finish the walk and you're still in silence. And then the, he as a guide will say, okay, we're, we're finished here. And you just spent 45 minutes walking around the city with other people saying nothing at all. So I've done that with some students and, and it's amazing. They really love it. They, they absolutely adore the experience. I think part of that is because A, it's so very strange and new and that's exciting. But B, it also allows them briefly a moment that's designed by me wherein they can access silence truly. And if they haven't had access to the concept of silence as a possibility, they've never given themselves such an opportunity. So what I'm doing as an educational practitioner is I'm creating a framework within which they can find and access silence on their own terms for themselves. I just create a frame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, Sometimes we talk about this in the context of play, right? I've heard teachers before say, I don't want to be, I don't want to be play into my room because my students are too old for that. They're not going to, they're not going to want to play, right? And I, it's kind of what you said, like, oh, I don't, I'm not going to bring silence because the kids aren't going to know what to do with it. But there, there's a really, you know, a huge chance and a huge likelihood that they actually will enjoy it, right? And you talk about that, right? As, you know, getting a student to a place that there's an element of joy, right? There's an element of agency in this silence is it is a huge thing to give a student. Well, I think I think the best possible thing that I, I do and I've ever done in respect of bringing silence into students' lives is, is my initial question because it's just such an astonishing paradigm shift for them. I say, uh, well, we're, you know, I'm thinking we could have some experience of silence. And then I say, is that okay? You know, I mean, that's a revolutionary question for some students. They're not used to it. They're used to teachers saying, now we're going to bring some silence into your lives. And they sit there and they wait to be told what to do and how to do it. And then they perform and they do as they're told. What I'm saying when I say, is that okay? Is I'm consulting them and I'm respecting their freedom, their choice, their desires. And this I think is for them such an important and interesting question. It doesn't really matter whether we then move into silence or not. That's just a sort of a side bonus if, if they have a nice experience. What has happened with the, is this okay question, is, is the revolution. But silence, because you can't force it, if you really want it as a positive, demands you ask that question. So therefore it is silence that brings that beautiful question into their life. Yeah, I love it. Go ahead, Greener. Um, Helen, I, I keep going back in my head, going back to your description of schools as binary. Um, and rather than 
I'll just use what I think of the opposite unitive or, or more unitive thinking. Um, has the experience of people willing and getting started experiencing si or schools that experience silence, has it resulted in less binary thought and, and more of a unitive consciousness? The, the one uh, little story I loved was the four, four it might have been four boys, four girls, it doesn't matter, but they were all silently, one was Muslim, one was Christian, one was, you know, Hindu. It, and they were all in silence and in, in a, some form of prayer, but it was a unitive experience. So that's, that's where I'm, th that kind of is, uh, inspired me when I read that. And so I'd just like you to comment on, does it help move us towards a more unitive consciousness? As far as I can tell, yes. And, and the further comment would be, why not? I mean, this is a material that doesn't have binaries. It doesn't have division. So if we're in the material, it's like if you walk into a yellow light, okay? You're gonna look yellow, you're gonna see yellow and everyone else around you is gonna seem yellow. So if everyone's in silence, everybody's gonna seem without division, without binary elements. And that as an experience can give a new consciousness, a new recognition of the falseness, the structural, the, 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 the construction that these binaries really are, they are false. They are just laid upon us in order to possibly make sense or to survive our own psychological disturbances and incapacities and so on and so forth. Just to walk through life stumbling as best we can, holding onto these binary handles in order to not fall. When we have silence, and this is why it is generous and it is kind, uh, we don't stumble without those binary handles, you know, uh, crutches. We don't stumble. We find ourselves and we find our feet in unity. Now, if anyone can tell me how that doesn't happen or why that doesn't happen, I'd be thrilled to hear from them because nobody can say that it doesn't happen or that it, it, um, it can't happen because it just does. And that's the material of silence. And I can't argue with that. Uh, it's impossible. If anyone can tell me that that's not going on, they are, I don't know, they are not human. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's scary though, right? If you think about our system in this, this construct of binary, it's there for a reason, right? It is there to maintain control. It is there to, to keep power over people, you know, power, over our marginalized students, right? Like I think that there's a there's a historical perspective for why this exists and there's nothing more scary to some than moving away from that and giving control back to these kids, right? Like giving the, them control over their minds, over their bodies, over their intentions, their attitudes. And that's what silence is gonna start doing right? It's going to open up this. So I think there's an element of fear in the system being like, oh, well, do we, are we really ready for that? Right? Do we really want that? What is that going to mean for our students? So I don't know. I think that there's that element of binary is pretty strategic in a lot of ways. Yeah. You, and, and so Jessica, that just brought up the thought. I just written it down too. How do you, how do we prep or is there a preparatory time or a space? How do you Kind of how do you get the garden ready for the seeds? That's what I want to know. 
when it when it comes to this concept in school because I, I think in all of our work we're learning if if you don't prepare the container it, it just doesn't go very far um, and and because it because of binary thinking really it just won't go very far how what, what any strategies for kind of preparing the soil for a good garden yeah, of silence? I think, yeah I think there are two and I think one of them is slowness but silence is not exactly the fast material that you know Formula One car is, um, and the 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 other one, and I mentioned this before, and I said I would comment on it. So I'm very glad that this has happened because it's key: is regularity. If you have regular experience of silence, it seems to be very important. If you don't have regular experience of silence, you've had a nice experience, a possibly momentarily beneficial experience but you will not enter into a process of transformation. So there has to be something like a daily experience. It doesn't have to be a long daily experience, but it's about forming an anchor for the knowledge that silence is there. And that seems to happen through repeated um, access, exposure, experience of attempting to meet that presence. So regularity is one thing that's really vital. And, and, and a realization that this revolutionary material is not an explosive that goes off like a pop. It's an explosive that occurs like water dripping over time. I like it. I mean, I love the patient side of it. And yeah. I think that that's a hard thing we battle in education too. Everybody wants immediate results and, and they want it datafied. <laughs> right now but that also, that also is part of its revolutionary nature is that it refuses to go fast and in that respect i think it, yeah. it respects us you know we as people we can't go fast in order to transform we're all going slowly trying to change trying to be better if that's our agenda so silence is in pace with us as humans I love that. I just wrote that down. Silence respects us. It refuses to go fast because that's, I mean, I can think of numerous times when I've been with kids, whether, you know, they're, they're sitting in a lot of emotions and I'm doing my best just to be quiet, just to give them that space. And I'm like, wow, we've probably been sitting here for 35 minutes and it's been like two, right? Like there's something about it that just as humans, we're in a fast paced world and we're, and we're giving ourselves this option just to slow down. <sighs> um, Grainer, any anything else? This has been phenomenal. Any other questions? Oh, she's just covered my questions so well. Um, I, you know, I guess one of the results I would like to celebrate that you talked about um, was getting to the point where kids want to engage rather than feeling they have mm -hmm. to engage. Yeah. Um, how is that, you know, and how has that happened? I mean, I think I read about that in uh, one thing I loved about your book is your interviews with many mm -hmm. educators. And yeah. I think people reading your book are going to really appreciate that because they were really honest with you. And that, that, that was fascinating. So I don't, anyway, where was I? I, I, I got off on that, but um, it's this element of the kids, like, Kid, the kids seeking it, right? Like building this environment that they take agency and are able to find space for themselves, which is so powerful. I suppose at the end of the day, I mean, we could we could talk about this and we could sound 
eloquent or we can sound important, we can sound engaged, we can try and get this into other people's lives, all of this stuff, all of this egotistical jazz. But the, the, the thing about the material that you're interested in and want to talk about today is that it's going to turn all of that on its head and make it meaningless. And that's the beauty. Because when we strip all of our stuff away, we're going to be left with the good parts of ourselves, the right parts, the, the healthy parts. And so silence is a material that, that stops us short and, and, and wakes us up to what we really should be uh, and what, what we really can be together. I mean, uh, you, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite enthusiastic about it. Why? More than anything, because it's free. And it's not about a capitalist environment. It is our right. I love it. Helen, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. Um, again, your book, Silence in Schools, is a, is a must read. Um, and, you know, it's I'll, I'll put it online. I'll put it on my, probably my academia page. I'll put it online so that when people search for it, they can download it for free. Okay. I'll just check I've got, the, I've got the copyright permission, but I'm pretty sure I have. Yeah. Okay. Great. And then we'll put that link on our website um, next to kind of the release of this episode. So folks can go to educationsuspended.com and get that as a resource. Thank you for doing that. That is extremely generous. Um, and thank you for this work. It's necessary. You're, you're leading the way and I appreciate, I appreciate what you're doing. I'm thrilled to talk with you today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Awesome. Thanks, Ellen.